Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Diana Yoakum and Robert Brokamp, personal finance experts here at The Motley Fool. Motley Fool CFO Olin Douglas is also back today with advice on how to negotiate a raise. But before that, we're going to talk about the morality of defaulting on your student loans and a financial life planning website to check out. All that and some gloating by Diana and myself in this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So here's something fun we read this week. This is <laughs> What's fun about this is that whenever we start talking about this op-ed in the New York Times that ran this last week, Robert just shakes his head sadly and looks like he wants to just like I don't know. Not punch something, but definitely get definitely a little Definitely ground someone. Send definitely someone to the room. Partially. So, partially. So the op-ed was Why I Defaulted on My Student Loans by Lee Siegel. And it got a lot of people really upset. Not like Slate even said that the New York Times needs to apologize publicly for publishing this op-ed. And in it, Lee Siegel talks about how after pursuing not one, not two, but three degrees from Ivy League universities, the author chose to default on his student loans, and he recommended that others do the same. Yeah. yeah. See, I, I, here's here's my issue. So, I, part of it is personal, right? It sounds. I don't know if he's trying to elicit sympathy when he writes this, but uh, here's what my wife and Mr. Siegel have in common: uh, two master's degrees from Columbia, had to take out student loans, uh, became writers. The difference is, my wife paid off her student loans. Uh, he had to work part-time, she worked full-time. So his sob story just doesn't resonate with me at all. Yeah. He had to work part-time in through college. Right. Well, see, that's the thing. When you read the article, things are a little fuzzy, and then there have been follow-up stories about it. In a follow-up story, he said that actually his, for Columbia, he, he went on a scholarship. Um, so how much money did he have to borrow? And then it was sort of implied that maybe it was his living expenses that he had to borrow. Right, right. Um, well, and the thing here, part of the argument in the article is like, I wanted to be a writer. Sure, I could have taken a soul-crushing job or gotten a different kind of degree and paid back these loans, but my dream and my intention was to use my degrees and become a writer. And to be a writer, I wasn't going to make very much money and therefore would be unable, was unable to pay back these yeah, loans. Yeah, I don't know if it's like, so there's the level of this is annoying that he didn't pay off his loans, but then he takes it to a whole nother level by sounding like the most obnoxious human being in the world <laughs> in this op-ed, yeah. right? Like the tone that he takes. And so to your point about how he said like, well, I could have taken a better job, soul crushing mm -hmm. job. But like the way he says it, he's like, the only way I could survive without wasting my life in a job that had nothing to do with my particular usefulness to society like he is God's gift <laughs> to earth. Where and would we would be, be without the writings of Lee Siegel? Where would we be? You know, and here I'm thinking, well, you know what? Maybe he maybe he would have been a really great refrigerator repairman and he just didn't know it. Maybe actually God put him on this earth to repair my refrigerator, but no, instead he's decided that his particular gift to earth is yeah. writing. And how can we deny it? So, right. however, the one thing that is we can't argue is that when he signed the documents to take those on those loans, he did so with the promise of paying them back. Right. Meaning he broke the promise? Yeah. Yeah. And, and he pointed out that the banker is fi was 50 and bald, which I don't think was necessary as a half, <laughs> as a half bald man myself. <laughs> right. I, yeah. 
he does make some worthwhile points. So, you know, any 17, 18 year old, they have no idea what they're doing when they're signing those papers. They really don't. Um, and he talks about morality and stuff like that and whether it's moral or not to pay back your loans. And I think it's worthwhile questioning whether it's moral for colleges to allow people to borrow this much to get, in my case, an English degree. Um, if, if it were up to me, that you, it would be sort of like a mortgage, right? You can only borrow a certain amount of money mm-hmm. based on your income and your assets. Well, if you're going to become an English major, you're, you should only be allowed <laughs> to borrow so much money. If you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, it's a different story. But it, at that age, yeah. they, they do not yeah. understand it, and it needs to be imposed from without. Right. I just love that being a writer be, and having an English degree is always the punchline for, <laughs> right? Well, that's because it's always I, the punchline for you're never going to make any money in your life. And this is coming from a communications degree holder. I, I was an English major with a with a focus on poetry. Okay, so uh. <laughs> fortunately, I I did not have to take out student loans, but I write awesome poems about retirement. Let me tell you, not really. We're, we're going to need you to haiku us out of this segment. <laughs> so, bottom line, of course, is. Pay back your loans, people, and don't become an English major. (laughs) (laughs) Not not necessarily the last one. Um, Yes, the last one. We need to offer responsible financial uh, advice. Make your mom proud. (laughs) Go become a lawyer or a doctor like she always wanted, okay? Now it's time for Dayana Tested, Dayana Approved. Today we're looking at financial life coaches. You might be skeptical that there is yet another niche of life planner to tell you how to live your life better, but Dayana is here with the skinny because this one is actually pretty good. Yeah. All right. So this is a financial life planner, and how they differ from a traditional financial planner is that they go a lot deeper trying to find the why behind the what. What is the goal of your goals? What kind of life are you really trying to achieve and how can we arrange your finances so you can so you can do that? So you go to a traditional financial planner, they're all of them are going to ask, what are you saving for? What are your goals? And you might say early retirement or opening my own business or buying a new car or weekend lake house. Those are all fine goals. A traditional planner is going to take that example um, put some numbers on there and show you a way to achieve that. Well, with a life planner, they're going to look at all of that. And before they even crunch the numbers, they're going to dig deeper and say, why? Why do you want that lake house? Because if, as you have this discussion, it turns out it's not the lake house per se that's the desired. What the client really wants is to spend more time with their children. They remember their fond memories they had with their family at the, at the lake house that they had every summer and thought, okay, the way to recreate that is with this very tangible black and white numbers goal. Well, if the, if the person pursues that traditional plan, they're working more hours, they're taking on more clients, they're pulled further away from the family, they're spending actually spending less time, and therefore it becomes a very unsatisfactory thing when they reach that milestone, and the kids are then like cranky teenagers who really don't want to spend the weekend with mom and dad at the lake house after all. So with a, with a, a financial life plan, they're going to look at different alternatives, and maybe it's finding an affordable cabin to rent on the weekends, taking on fewer side projects in the summer so they can have a longer break together as a family. 
And when you do these exercises, as they've said with the kinder financial planners, it turns out time is often what we crave much more than material things. And so the creator of the financial life planning movement, do I call it a movement? Yeah. They just created a website that you can use. Yeah, to- and, and I love this. It's uh, George Kinder is the founder of of the uh, of the movement, and the website is called lifeplanningforyou.com, and it has exercises on there that help you identify the why behind the what. For free? Do I have to pay for this? For free. Okay. You register to get access. You can save your work as you go, and what's great about it is if you're say you're working with a a regular financial planner, or if you're just doing this on your own, it helps you articulate what those goals are. So then, what's that website again? Lifeplanningforyou.com. All right. Well, I'm happy to say that everyone's favorite negotiator and chief financial officer is back in the studio. Olin, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me back. Well... Back by popular demand, I'm sure. <laughs> three three of us are yeah. like you. That's popular. And we're not me. just saying that because you signed the check. <laughs> <laughs> well, three is more popular than I was in high school, so this is, this is an upgrade. <laughs> oh. Well, our listeners are going to love you because today we're actually going to talk about how to negotiate a raise at work. With the economy on the mend and the unemployment rate at around 5.5%, experts say that now is actually a really good time to ask for a raise. Right? Uh, I'm <laughs> conflicted with this whole conversation. <laughs> just, just to make it clear, Olin is part of the salary negotiations here at The Motley Fool. Yes, but uh, yes, I think this is generally a good time, except at The Motley Fool. <laughs> <laughs> Well, did you know, this is kind of interesting, that if you're satisfied with your job, you are more likely to get a raise, but dissatisfied people are more likely to ask for a raise and less likely to get it. Right? So that brings up a point about timing. So when is it a good time to ask for a raise, both you personally (laughs) and thinking about the company? Right. And I think it's it's what you're saying there. A good time to ask for a raise is um, when things are going well for you, you personally in your role and for the company as well. And I think that convergence is probably the best time to ask for a raise. As I've thought of it, it's really three things that I would say to people to highlight um, what to do to kind of when it comes time to ask for that raise. The first one is to focus on the value that you've created rather than um, – how hard you've worked. Um, Working hard is something that a lot of people do. It's it's very subjective, and it's hard to kind of uh, separate yourself just by saying you're working hard. I would would go as far to tell people to list out their accomplishments that they've done for themselves, I mean, that they've done, and kind of think about how that has created value for the company. It's not that you would ever hand that list to anyone, although someone may ask for it if it's particularly well uh, done, but the idea is to uh, prepare yourself so that you can speak about your accomplishments in a very concise way, in a very clear way uh, to the person you're approaching. I'm assuming if you can put dollar amounts on that, mm-hmm. that's helpful. Yeah, and even if it's not dollar amounts, I would say, uh, and this is where I'm, I'm working against myself here, but uh, numbers help. It doesn't have to be dollars, but a certain certainly numbers help uh, to, to quantify what you've done. I've increased production on uh, this amount of things. I, I 
I oversaw these specific kind of projects, these events that went off and, and that X number of people attended. And um, my satisfaction rating and customer service has, has increased. The number of complaints about me has de- decreased. That sort of, all those things are helpful. They aren't necessarily explicitly tied to dollars, but there are people in the organization that can make that translation probably even better than you can. Mm-hmm. And, and what you need to do is, again, help them help you by giving them something that is quantifiable. There's a line uh, that I like, and I think it came from Ben Stein, um, but he said that uh, it's not just ability, but affability in terms of how much people like you and get along with you. Mm -hmm. So what's your take on that? I mean, how much does the overall company's opinion of you and and basically, are you a likable person? How much does that factor into it? Mm -hmm. I think it does factor into it. I would probably uh, modify that just a bit to uh, say that cultural fit is important and whether it's important to be likable or what, whatever the, 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 the culture of the company is, the, the more that you fit within that, the easier it's going to be for people to see you as an asset, to see you growing and developing and, and be in a position to be able to envision you playing a larger role. If you are someone who is upsetting people all around you and that is not the culture of your company, it's hard. Even if you're doing well, it's hard to see someone saying, Steve yes, does. this person's a jerk and when he's managing three people. Let me see if I can put him in a position to manage 10 people and be a jerk. <laughs> and make 10 people miserable at this company. Exactly. My, my impact of making people miserable expanded by eight people over the last year. Give that person more money. I made four of them cry within the first week of them reporting to me. But that might be part of your company's culture, which right. is a good it's, thing. Yeah. It is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. So then what about research? Because I remember what I did when I asked for a raise once in the past was I went online and I found out, okay, well, what do people in my job mm-hmm. usually make? Right. Like that seems like a pretty basic thing to research too. Exactly. Make sure you understand for your area, for your particular role, uh, what it is. And, and there is some flexibility. And this is where you can't help yourself. If you think that your role is not the traditional role, Find that role, that job description that kind of matches up what you think you're really doing, and that could be an, an interesting way to help redefine what what an appropriate salary range is for you. How much ab- <clears throat> about considering what the the company's position, like financial position, mm-hmm. weighs in on this? I think because we might say, you know, they might say, oh well, your benefits. You're, you have better benefits here than other companies, yeah. for instance. Yeah. Um, I think that's important to consider because a lot of those salary websites don't factor yeah. that into it. Right. I and think, we get the crazy benefits at the Motley Fool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you do. And I think that it is, uh, that's very important, a, a total comp kind of view of what you're doing. Look at the salaries you're getting paid, the flexibility and the benefits, and kind of decide um, what it is that, that you really want. Um, if you would like a little bit more flexibility on your work hours, don't ask for more money. Ask for more flexibility on your hours. Um, more money. If you are working too hard and you're feeling stressed out, a lot of people will go to a natural, natural inclination. I need to be paid more. If they're going to have me doing this, I need to be paid more. The truth of the matter is that generally doesn't help. Um, it may help in a very short period of time, but if you're overworked and stressed out, paying you an extra $2 an hour isn't going to reduce your stress. You don't have time to spend the money already. You know? <laughs> You're know, you not going to have more. You're still going to be overworked and stressed out. What you need is to revisit your, your, your role and your responsibilities and to get a job that's, that's more uh, satisfying and it leaves you more time for you to, um, to manage your life. That's what you really need. 
And so often uh, people think to ask for a raise, but it's more than dollars that you can kind of ask for. And there are a lot of studies that show how, you know, once you reach a certain point where mm-hmm. you make a good living wage and you can cover things and mm-hmm. still have a little bit of room, that that the 10000 extra dollars a year doesn't make you, if you're making 100000 doesn't make you 10% happier. No. Uh, and if, but I love I love that you say if you're working really hard, the comp extra compensation there might not be dollars. Right. That exactly. And then and always understanding this, the situation of the company. Things are uh, the economy is is improving slowly. Some areas better than others. But understanding the situation that your company in is helpful for two reasons. One, it gives you a better sense of whether it's the right time or not. But also, the more aware you are of things beyond yourself, <laughs> the more valuable you seem mm-hmm. as an employee. The, the, the right. employee comes in and, and says, wow, we had a great year this year and we made some significant changes and I think I had a lot to play in that and I did A, B, and C. And I was wondering if this was a good time to kind of revisit my salary and see if it's an opportunity for an adjustment. Is a much better uh, situation than on the one hand, your company is laying off people, and that is when you decide to walk in and say, you know, you're laying off people, and I'm important, and yeah. I need a raise. It's not just about the health of the company, though. Isn't it also about knowing when your manager needs to submit his budget and stuff like that? Are there, like, specific times of the year? Yes. All, all companies um, operate differently. Some companies do uh, performance reviews on an annual basis, some quarterly, some do it kind of real time. I don't think it's ever a bad time to start the conversation, um, to get it in people's minds, um, I wouldn't worry about when to bring the topic up. Just make sure that that you're in the queue, and so that whenever that comes around, um, that you're a part of that conversation. What about a situation where you recognize that right now you're fairly paid, but you would like to earn more money? Um, looking around the company and saying, "Okay, these are the people who are paid more." There's no opening in that department, but should I start working on being qualified for that position? Mm-hmm in the hopes that at some point uh, there will be an opening and I can move to that. Is that something you bring up to your to someone right now and say, listen, I would love to be working in this department. What do I have to do to move to that place? Uh, yeah, that's a tricky one. It, it depends on um, how that question is phrased. If someone phrased that, I would probably, if they are a good employee, I certainly would work with them to see if we can figure out a way to get them introduced to that. If they want to make more money, um, and moving to another department makes me a little bit nervous unless it's a true passion for them. And that's what I would probably suggest if I, I knew the, the real motive was let's talk about what you do well. Let's talk about what areas of challenges are for you. And let's think about positions that have greater responsibility and greater value creation opportunities. And let's see if we can start to push you in that path. You know, so if you're an accountant, you want to make more money. Let's see if we can get you to be a supervisor. Let's see if you, you know, we can get you to a managerial level. Maybe there are some courses we can take, so that we can give you more challenging projects, so that the rewards follow it. So it really is positioning that person to succeed, um, given their own particular strengths. Um, sometimes that's a, a department change. Uh, okay. In this situation, let's say the answer is no. You cannot have a raise. Have you? just done irreparable damage to your internal reputation uh how <laughs> how do you recover yeah too? how do, how do mean, you recover from a right. no you'll probably yeah. feel a little yeah. resentment right. and, yeah. and disappointment. A, a little yeah. but but even if it might maybe the answer is completely fair it's like no you know right now we're not in a financial position to do this mm-hmm. but anyhow so the answer comes back no yeah. how 
how are I you mean, now perceived? It, it depends on how you ask. I think uh, it's probably the safest way to ask, uh, I would say, if you're, if you're concerned about risk averse, is to, again, have your accomplishments. There, but just ask for a salary review. Um, okay. Someone will go off, they will do their thing and come back and say whether you are over or under. I mean, people know. There's only reason, one reason why you ask for a salary review. It's not like you want to. I think I'm making <laughs> a little too much bank. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's what you ask for a salary review, and it may come back that, you know, we looked and you seemed like you're, you know, at, at the right level. But then you started a conversation and then a question, again, back to negotiating, asking for help. Well, what could I do to move to another level? Those kind of conversations actually probably reflect favorably on you because it shows you as someone who is ambitious and who's conscientious and, and wants to not just get more money because some. Give you because you want to earn more money. Mm-hmm. I think it puts you in a good light. And then also the truth of the matter is, um, um, bosses aren't always walking around thinking every single day, um, my people need more money. You know, yeah. and so just making it known that that you would like um, a higher compensation level is not a bad thing because it just raises awareness for you that that that's something that um that you think needs to be looked at. Okay. Well, we talked about negotiating with like your insurance company or your cable provider. You talked about knowing when you'd be willing to walk away. Mm-hmm. Is that do you feel that you need to approach your salary negotiation the same way and knowing that if I don't get X, then I'm mm-hmm. outseas? Yeah, I think th- I think that is true, and that's a that's a tougher one. But if you've done the research and you feel like you're being underpaid and that your 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 skill set is is more valued in the marketplace, uh, sometimes uh, it is a signal that you have to move on. You find that a lot often when people work in the um, get a degree while they're in a job. So someone who doesn't have a college degree goes gets a college degree in a specific area, and now um, just by virtue of how they come in, they're being paid significantly less than a new person coming in with the same credentials. And often, the only way to maximize the value of those external learnings that happen is to move to another another place. I'm not sure why that is, but I I see it very often. Mm, Yeah, so right. if they say no, you grab a stapler, some other office supplies on your way out. So sorry, I'm not. Right. And free chips. Yeah, and free <laughs> chips. All right. Well, well, thank you for joining us today. And just to, like, to wrap it up here, if you're looking to ask for a raise, focus on the value you've created for the company. Make sure to understand the state of the company, the yes. financial state. Uh, and also understand what the market is paying for your position and knowing where you stand. Is there any other advice you want to ask as a parting shot here? I think that pretty much covers it. I don't have anything as a parting shot right now. Um, other than if you work at the Motley Pool, you're probably fairly paid right now, so none of this is particularly <laughs> I, relevant. I was going to ask, let's say you started a podcast. Um, <laughs> what kind of raise should you ask for after that? I would say that it would be a great time to uh, come and talk to us about a raise when the podcast reaches maybe a million subscribers. That's oh, gotcha. Nice All right, guys, about. tell your friends. <laughs> tell tell nine hundred ninety thousand, nine hundred ninety nine of your friends. <laughs> we're gonna get a little. We're gonna get a little th- fundraising thermometer. We're gonna it every day. <laughs> Deanna and I aren't ones to gloat, except for whenever we're right. <laughs> So this week we have Marco Rubio to thank. A couple of weeks ago we talked about how Marco Rubio is cashing out his retirement account. And while we can all agree this is usually a boneheaded move, Robert came to his defense a little bit, to which Deanna and I were still skeptical. So 
some more aspects of his financial life have come into light. And it Ro- turns Robert, out Robert was craving more information. To he was craving. To... It's true. He was. Yes. He wanted. Well, yes. I want to know more about it. Well, guess what? We've got we've got some more information <laughs> about Marco Rubio and his history with money, and it is not pretty. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's all on the spending side. He's made a lot of money. So it turns out that between 1998 and 2008, he earned $2.38 million, but ended up with an estimated net worth of $53,000. Whoa. Whoa. Which is a savings rate, I guess, of about 2%. That seems like a negative savings yeah. rate, actually. But anyway, this is me reading it from yet again the New York Times. Before we go too far down this road, I want to point out that we are not a political show. We don't like talking about politics, but we do feel it's okay to attack politicians for their personal money management. Yes? Absolutely. Okay. Totally agree. Okay. Okay. So when you dig into the details, Yes. So he made a lot of money and then he made some big purchases as well. The, the one that people talk about is the $80,000 boat, for which, example. Which we all know, instead of buying a boat, you should just go stand in your shower and rip up $100 bills. <laughs> right? As the old <laughs> so adage goes. <laughs> right. So so there you have it. So yeah, if you're in that situation where you're spending that 80000 on a boat... Um, you have less of an excuse to be taking 68000 out of your IRA. Um, so, yeah, he definitely made a mistake on that one. Um, you know, the, the only thing I will say for some people is, you know, they'll say, like, you only live once, and I'm not going to save for retirement, or I'm going to use my retirement funds for something else. To them, I will say, that's fine if you never want to retire. And that's that's fine, too, if you want to keep keep working for the rest of your life and in Marco Rubio's situation he's going to get a pension so fine but yeah I would not say what he did was a good thing so Diana and I were right (laughs) and you were wrong (laughs) I just didn't have all the information I just you know it's just playing the devil's advocate or something like that yeah so all right we'll stop gloating like we said All right, that's it for today, kiddos. Our email is answers at fool.com. The show is edited by Rick Engdahl. Theme music is composed and performed by Dayana Yoakum. Tell a friend about us, especially if you're friends with Marco Rubio. (laughs) That man needs some help. (laughs) For Dayana Yoakum and Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Full on. Full on.